Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Is lament a lack of faith or maybe the fullness of hope? Could the refusal to engage in lament maybe just be part of a spiritual defense rather than spiritual maturity? And what happens when all of life becomes meaningless? Well, that's what we're talking about today. My name is Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Being With podcast where we're looking into neuroscience and faith. We're produced by Grassroots Christianity, which seeks to grow faith for everyday people. Today, we have some special guests, two people on today. So it's the first time that I've actually interview two people at the same time. Hopefully this will go pretty well, but we have Megan Anna Neff, who is a clinical psychologist in training, uh, and her main research is to integrate psychology and religion and theology, so it's perfect for this podcast. She's a doctoral candidate at George Fox University and studied theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. We're also joined with Mark McMinn, who is Professor Emeritus at uh, and scholar in residence at George Fox University in clinical psychology. And he seeks to find creative ways to bring the church and theology together in partnership. And they just co-authored a book called Embodying Integration, a fresh look at Christianity in the therapy room. Thank you so much, Megan, Anna, and Mark for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's hard to be interviewed at the same time. My wife and I, we co-wrote a book and it's always like, well, who goes first? And usually we're sitting next to each other in the same room. So it's easy to give each other cues off camera, but that's not the case for you guys. But thank you for being on the show today. And I especially want to focus in on the concepts of lament and meaninglessness. And again, you wrote this book called Embodying Integration, which just has so many... Before we jumped on, I was like, there's so many good topics in this book um, that would really benefit the church and pastors, not just uh, therapists uh, and counselors, um, but we, we just don't have that much time. So I wanted to focus in on these concepts of lament. So I'm going to throw the first question to you, Megan Anna. What, or what are some of the reasons why people avoid lament? Uh, and maybe more generally, as a society, why do we in the West maybe find it hard to engage lament? Those are kind of big questions, but I thought we'd just jump in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That Those are big questions. I love those questions. Um, yeah, I, you know, and having lived in Western contexts and then having spent some time in non-Western contexts, it, it does feel like a stark difference of how we along the way really lost the language of lament. And I have various theories about why that might be. Um, in general, I sense we're a society that is uncomfortable with looking at pain, looking at the existential, looking at our, I mean, I think this is part of what has made COVID such a, such an interesting year is as a society in general, we usually do a really 
well at avoiding death. Mm -hmm. And in this last year, we haven't been able to do that as a society. And so I think discomfort is one reason, um, which, you know, we could get into, like, there might be some psychologies of denial and repression around that. Um, I also think it has to do with attachment. You were just saying before we started, kind of, you've done some deep dives into attachment, but, you know, one of the things we explored in Lament is it takes a really secure, trusting relationship to express those more negative emotions and grief. And so if there's any sense that if I express these negative emotions to God or to others, they might leave, then that makes it pretty scary to express some of those griefs and losses. And so I, one thing I find is I I feel like our grief, it doesn't go away. It just comes out sideways. And so there's an interesting book. I'm forgetting who authored it at the moment, but kind of the culture of complaint that perhaps instead of lament, we channel some of this grief into complaint and into other negative spirals. So I don't know if I answered your questions. Those are some of my um, random associations to your, to your rich questions though. Well, I know too, you, um, you wrote, I think uh, in the book, or maybe this is, I'm just pulling this from somewhere else that we're a culture that avoids pain. And so we, Mm -hmm. rather than getting in touch with the things that would cause us lament, we just either, avoid, medicate, distract. Um, we really just don't want to be a part of pain. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, right. So Mark, you have also, you mentioned that in your practice, you know, having been a therapist over, uh, a, you know, a longer time that you've noticed a change in how therapists engage with lament that before it was trying to help people get out of their sadness, but now you kind of, uh, practice has changed a little bit. Is that true? I do think that's true. Yeah. There, there, um, I had a physician once tell me that the United States is the only place where people think death is optional. And I had the sense that um, sometimes early in my career, people sort of thought discomfort is optional. But, you know, it's truly not. Um, there's a bit of a backstory, I think, in this lament chapter, because uh, what we haven't disclosed yet is that Megan Anna and I are related. She's my daughter. And as um, a- after she finished at Princeton and was an at-home mom for a while, she started this doctoral program where I teach. And we were getting in the habit, a nice habit, which we've fallen out of recently, of, of walking once a week and just sort of chatting about life. But it was a time, it was um, 2016. There were just a lot of turmoil in the world. Um, there's a lot of turmoil in the world now too, but, but it was a, a time where we were just spending a lot of time talking about sorrow, I think, talking about how hard life is. And one thing led to another, and eventually we thought these conversations, which were about psychology and theology and life and how, how to live a life, um, they ended up sort of turning into a book project, which became Embodying Integration. Mm. It's it's been uh, we've taught a class together for a couple of years now on integration of psychology and theology and and we've discovered starting the class off with the lament chapter and then following it up with Ecclesiastes uh, about meaninglessness you know you're using that phrase we'll actually challenge that word a little bit later but but the idea is that's a kind of depressing start to a class to go in and talk about lament and then talk about Ecclesiastes but I do think it it connects with today's to get back to your initial question I think it connects with today's students because people are more open to talking about mm-hmm. things being hard and suffering in the world 
than they were back when I was young. I, I, I just think there's been a shift in that way. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah, I definitely think as a teaching tool, you kind of get, you know, grab the students and kind of track with them where they are. Well, so Megan, Anna, what is kind of the understanding that you're trying to lead people into when it comes to lament and biblical lament? Like what, what is lament then? Uh, and how is it kind of understood in, in the Bible? especially mm-hmm. the Psalms, but also other portions. Jeremiah is what you talk about too in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I really like the language of protest that often what we see, like what we see in Jeremiah and in the Psalms is, is a, a divine protest of, you know, and, and Jeremiah, I mean, he gets, he gets into it with God. Like he's saying, you are not holding up to your end of the deal here. And even using God's character to challenge God into action. So, I mean, talk about a, a secure attachment, right? Like to have that level of, of protest and anguish that you're speaking in the context of a relationship, um, that has to be a pretty trusting relationship, trusting mm-hmm. that God can hear that, God can hold that. And so for me, I think the hope with lament is people have these griefs, people have this pain. What I find clinically, and I would say also in the church, is folks have a lot of guilt about bringing that to God. They feel like if I bring that to God, it, it means I'm not faithful. It means I'm a bad Christian. It means I'm doubting. And so they kind of keep that part away from God. But it's in it's in the bringing to God. It's in the expressing of anger and anguish that I think a lot of healing can happen. I, I also think it signals that God can hold that, that God is not as fragile as sometimes perhaps we treat God to be. Sure. And later we're going to get into this topic of spiritual defenses. So I definitely want to get back to that. But what, what do you see uh, as the connection between lament and hope? Because a lot of people mm-hmm. think, well, when you're lamenting, it's because you're hopeless, but is that really mm-hmm. the case? Yeah, yeah. I would say hope is kind of, we get to a deeper, more authentic, more robust hope on the other side of lament. Um, part of the hope is, you know, and I think different folks would answer this differently. Some theologians might say the hope is that God will act. Um, I think where I land is more the hope that God can hold and be present in the suffering, that God has not left us alone in our pain, mm-hmm. and hope that transformation can occur in those moments of deep pain. And so absolutely, I don't think you can speak those words or express that level of sorrow without a, a central hope in in God's presence. Mm, yeah, the and not just um, like the hope that comes in the morning. I know a lot of times when we think of lament, we also think of joy, and and, and we see them as opposites uh, mm. that you kind of oscillate. And you talk about this in in the book about how you know whether it's clinical practice or you know I'm a pastor also, so pastoral practice. We kind of are trying to get people to, you know, if you're in lament, then we need to get you back to joy. And sometimes you slip out of joy. But I think, you know, there's, a, and there's certain Psalms that do speak that way, but I think that lament and joy or lament and hope um, in other Psalms and other portions of scripture, you know, for the joy set before him, you know, Jesus endured the cross. Like, how does that fit together? Um, is really, it's God's presence with us in the midst of those trials, mm-hmm. not the fact that God's going to just deliver us from the trials mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Marcus. You're about to jump in. Go I, ahead. 
I, I really appreciate what you're saying there. I um, I think of the book of Lamentations. Um, there's there's a website I found that actually rank orders the, the how often ver- verses in the Bible are cited, and the only one that really shows up anywhere high in the book of Lamentations is. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, or his, his mercies are new every morning. I'm forgetting the actual um, reference of it. But I, I went and I looked at the context of that verse, and, and it is. It's a very hopeful verse. It's the one we sing praise choruses about. But if you look at all around it, the whole chapter, the whole book, it's just dark. It's, it's, it's painful. It's just the, the level of grief in that book is profound. So what we do is we sort of plunder the one verse that says um, God's mercies are new every morning, and we make our praise choruses about that. And 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 it's true. I'm not de- I'm not denying that that's true. But to really understand lament, we have to go into the darkness of the human struggle and suffering, and that's what the whole book of Lamentations does. Mm, yeah. Well, I uh, so this is uh, you know. For those involved in the church calendar, we just started the season of Lent, and I was just preaching yesterday uh, about the first passion prediction, and where uh, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus, you know, for saying that he's going to die, and um, and the whole sermon was basically that we can have correct information but understand it the wrong way, and so you bring up spiritual defenses, but you kind of just throw that out. You don't fill that out in the book too much, so I don't know which one of you wants to kind of take this. What do what are spiritual defenses? It seems to me it's like when you have, it's those Christian platitudes that you give people or something like that. But what are spiritual defenses? How do they come up like in therapy? And, but I know that they come up like in just church life too. So which one of you wants to take that one? I'll, I'll jump in and start on that. I, I, I okay. think Megan Ann will probably have some thoughts too. One of the most robust concepts in, in the practice of psychotherapy and counseling is the notion of psychological defense, which mm-hmm. is to say, and so I'm going to get to your question, but I'm backing into it. Psychological defense is to say. So you're integrating neuroscience, yeah. psychology, and faith. Okay, I like it. There you go. There you I go. Like uh, rather than sort of taking the struggles that we face head on, we defend ourselves. So instead of saying that, um, I struggle with petty jealousy. I say that my partner struggles with petty jealousy. And essentially, I'm defending myself by projecting it onto someone else. So there's all kinds of defense. We can de- denial is another example of something. Where we, if, if something bad's about to happen, I can just deny it and not think about it. So these are psychological defenses. Well, the notion of spiritual defenses is that we can do the same thing with our spiritual language. And sometimes we we don't feel like God is going to be sort of safe enough to speak the truth. And so we might use these spiritual defenses. Like I know, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't complain to God because God is good all the time, Mm -hmm. which in a sense is protecting God from something that God's probably strong enough. Well, definitely strong enough to stand up against. So, um, so yeah, that, that's my first thought on spiritual defenses. It's it's trying to protect ourselves and trying to protect God from something that is essentially not honest. Mm. And then I would just add that sometimes we we co-opt kind of our spiritual language we speak for the purpose of our psychological defenses, um, which is I know we're not going to get into this chapter, but it's why I love 
working on God image, God concept, kind of the disconnection between our theology and thinking about God and our experience of God. Because when you go into that, you get into all sorts of, um, you know, for example, if someone experiences God as a, a judging God whose, whose love must be earned, but their theology is God is loving, God is kind, God is forgiving. So there's this disconnect in exploring that, which we, we might call a spiritual defense, in exploring that unearths a lot of psychological defenses and beliefs about how I earn love in the world and how I earn mm-hmm. value and worth in my relationships. And so it, we can enter it with any language, but I think they're very intertwined in how they show up in people's lives. Well, why don't we, why don't we get into that? Cause you know, I also wrote a, you know, a book on being made in God's image and you know, how God is seeking to be with us. So I'm all for it. So we'll just go into it. Uh, I told him before we jumped on air, I was like, there's so many good things. We just won't reach it. But I, I do think that there is this connection between our ability to enter into lament or just any strong emotions in connection with our relationship to God. Um, there's a connection between the, the ability or inability to do that and our God concept. So can you kind of uh, fill out what you mean by that? So we are made in God's image uh, as, as they say, but we return the favor and made God in our image. Mm-hmm as the joke goes, but there is this, you, you say as, you know, as therapists that, um, especially with religious people that you need to kind of find the mismatch between those two things. So mm-hmm. can you kind of like explain what you mean by that a little bit? We'll start with you, <laughs> Megan, Anna, and then Mark, you can jump in too. Yeah. So this is something that, um, I would say for those who are familiar with kind of the different philosophies within psychology, more psychoanalytic or psychodynamic therapists have probably spent more time looking at this. Um, But we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are our internal working models of significant attachment figures in our life? So parents are a big one. Um, And when we're religious, God becomes a big internal working model around attachment. And not always, you know, the research is actually pretty mixed around this, but it's, it's not uncommon for those to match, actually. So if I experience my parent as incredibly distant and wrathful and needing to earn their love, I might then transpose that onto my experience of God. Now that's, I say the research is mixed because sometimes people form kind of the opposite attachment to God and that becomes very protective and it buffers against perhaps a more strained parental relationship. So that's generally what we call the God image, the my intuitive experience of God. And these are things that are often outside of our awareness, even. Um, We might think about them as like our relational template. It's very implicit and experiential. And then we have our God concept, which is my theology about God. So if I'm going to write an essay about this is what I believe God to be, um, that's going to be my my God concept. And it's not uncommon for there to be a disconnect between our experience of God and our God concept. And that becomes really rich territory to explore of what's going on there. Um, And again, it's when we're thinking about healing, you know, whether we're talking in therapy or in pastoral counseling about one's experience to God or one's experience in their key relationships, it's getting at that same relational template in, in both cases so I feel like that's an area I dance a lot. I dance around a lot clinically where we might be in one moment talking about their experience of God 
and in the next connecting that to their experience of parents or others or self. Mm -hmm. Uh, The more I've learned about this, the more (laughs) it's made preaching impossible for me because I'll want to say something, but then I think, Oh, but if I say it this one way, then someone who has this kind of attachment style with their parent will receive it the way I intend. But if someone has this attachment style, they'll receive it in the exact opposite way and it'll do harm to their spiritual life. So I can't say anything now. No, that's not totally true, but it kind of is true. That's why it's like, well, that's why therapists do it this one-on-one instead of, <laughs> instead of in group. But Mark, what would you add to that? Uh, just that spiritual defenses or not, but the image yeah. of God and the internal working models and things like that. Well, and I think your illustration of, of about preaching is really poignant. Um, so, so and, and you write books, so you, you're familiar with what I'm about to say. But when you write a book, oftentimes you go through multiple revisions of a chapter to make it the way you and your editor wants it to be. And when you're co-authoring a book, you've got, you know, another set of eyes, too. So, so we went back and forth a lot in this chapter. And my first draft of the part that I wrote in this chapter was pretty theological. I'm not a theologian, but I love theology, so I read a lot of theology. And I I did sort of unpacking this sort of historical, theological, you know, there's three traditions of the Imago Dei, the image of God historically, uh, the functional, substantive, and relational. So I unpacked all that, and I even talked about a sort of fourth one that's kind of coming on the scene. And, And a lot of that, almost all of that got edited out, because in a sense... Theology is, I don't want to say it's easy. It's not. Theology is hard. It's, it's been hammered out for centuries. But it, it can be used sometimes as a spiritual defense against this sort of harder work of trying to understand who do I believe God to be? How do I experience God? And how does that impact my way of relating to other people in the world and my way of relating to God? So, Megan Anna just was really, really helpful as we worked, and our editor at InterVarsity Academic uh, was really helpful as we sort of worked through the iterations of this chapter, and it became much more about how do we personally experience God more than the sort of theological view about what it means to be made in God's image. There's an interesting parallel process in that, Mark, that I didn't I didn't realize till you were just talking about it, but... Um, one of the most deflating things I read when I was coming across this literature is if you want to change someone's God image, changing their theology actually doesn't do a whole lot, which as someone who's, um, you know, spent quite a few years studying theology is pretty, or as a pastor, that's a pretty deflating piece of information to come across. So it's interesting, even in editing back that chapter, we ended up kind of pruning some of that more heavy lifting theology and getting more into that experiential piece. Mm. Yeah, so you're making me question my whole profession. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Happy Monday morning. Teaching and writing, uh, you know, about theology. So, but, but you know, I joke because I know I I know that to be true. I've experienced that to be true as a pastor. That you know, sermons change people much less frequently than we'd like to think. Well, um, so there was one. The other good thing that I just love about your book is that you have these like side conversations where the two of you are just talking to each other. And then you have just like really good questions for integration. So one of them, um, one of them is this, how do you keep um, lament from devolving into free floating bitterness? So that is a question, you know, that I think someone like myself who is by temperaments, you know, floating more toward the joyful 
at East side. And, you know, then I get worried about lament, but there is a danger that lament can turn into complaining and can turn into bitterness or something like that. So could you fill out that one thing and then we'll shift over to Ecclesiastes and how things maybe aren't all meaningless. I might jump in there. Um, because I think in that, I think it was that same conversation where Megan Anna brought up something about holding grief in one hand and gratitude in the other hand. And it seems to me that's so important to be able to do that. And part of being able to do that sort of goes against Western Enlightenment tradition and to be able to hold mystery and not have to cinch down certainty on everything. So to be able to grieve and to, to find gratitude and each of us probably knows where we need to lean most in order to have an honest experience of the world um i interrupted you megan anna what were you going to say about that oh i love i i had forgotten that part so i love that you added that um i was just going to add that lament puts it in a relational context and i think that protects from some of that bitterness and and it gives it a form there's a formfulness to our grief and our pain, which I think also can protect from, from the bitterness. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So with our time remaining, I do want to jump to the other book in the old Testament that people don't spend too much time in. <laughs> uh, you know, we moved from Jeremiah and Lamentations to Ecclesiastes. You know, I remember going to seminary and reading about Ecclesiastes and how it's all meaningless. But then I was reading this book and I was like, wait, they're like challenging this whole idea. So could you <laughs> fill out this idea of Ecclesiastes or, or, or meaninglessness uh, as maybe not what we thought? And then why is it so important, you know, for clinical practice, but also the students that you teach and why they seem to be really interested with it? Either one, you could just jump. Well, I think Megan Anna should start. Uh, and then I'll um, I'll jump in, Megan. And if you start by talking about this, the word uh, and mm-hmm. what you learned in your studies about the word, and then I'm going to jump in and show you what a um, what a bad father does. <laughs> okay. um, so yes, this is my favorite book of the Bible, um, and I found it. I found it my an article my senior year at Wheaton College. Um, and I would say it was, it was in a time where I was experiencing some deconstruction. Um, I wasn't sure where to fit some of my pain within the Christian tradition. And then I didn't even realize it at the time, but the author of that article, Xiao, he was at Princeton and I, I got to study with him. Um, and he, so he is one of the leading scholars around talking about Ecclesiastes as a framework for understanding how to live well amidst uncertainty. Mm. And part of me wants to do a deep dive into kind of the historical context that was going on in Ecclesiastes. I think the important thing to note just theologically, you know, it's traditionally attributed to King Solomon. And so it can be interpreted as, well, King Solomon had everything. He had a thousand wives and concubines and he says, everything's meaningless. So of course, everything is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so one thing I, I learned is that that's a pretty common literary technique to kind of say some someone who has more power wrote this text as a way of giving the text more power. Mm-hmm. So based on dating of the language, um, most scholars today place it 
around 450 to 550 BC, which was after the second exile. So after the Hebrews would have been coming back and when Persia was coming on scene as the new empire. So there's a lot of social, cultural um, insecurity, a lot of change that was happening. The biggest one being that they were transitioning to a cash economy. And so all of a sudden the rules of the game were changing, you know, kings and princes and righteousness they were losing all of their money. And back then, if you lost all of your money, um, you know, there's no bankruptcy to protect you. So you could be, you'd lose everything. You and your family could be enslaved. So there's a ton of uncertainty, a ton of anxiety. And so in a world such as this, everything is Havel, the Hebrew word Havel, um, which is ungraspable. It's like the the dew that comes from, from the grass. Unfortunately, through various reasons, it has come to us in our current way of reading the scripture as meaningless. Mm. But it is not that everything is meaningless. It is that everything is ungraspable. Everything is havel. Nothing is certain. And so then you see the author of this text grappling with, well, how do you live well? How do you live faithfully when, when everything is uncertain, when everything is changing, when um, nothing is graspable? And I, I think there's some really deep psychological as well as theological reflections that go into this anxious, ancient text. And so, so here's the bad father story. So uh, when I got the first draft where Megan Anna was unpacking the theology of this, and she kept this word Hevels shows up, what, 37 times, I think, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And she was challenging, based on her studies at Princeton Seminary, she's challenging this notion of translating it as meaninglessness. And I was thinking, that's, you know, that's right at the beginning. You open the book of Ecclesiastes in English, and the second verse is meaningless. <clears throat> Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. So what I did is I, I felt like i, I got to double-check this. So I have a friend who has a Ph.D. from Harvard in uh, wisdom literature, and I went and I chatted with him, and I said, this is what my daughter says. <laughs> really? <laughs> and he absolutely agreed. He said, <clears throat> "There's some, and I don't follow it all, but there's something about the translation from Hebrew to Latin to Aramaic to English, and somehow in that long, complicated translation, we have become comfortable with this word meaninglessness or meaningless. But the much better word really is um, like the dew on the morning grass. It's fleeting. It's ungraspable. Uh, life itself can't be, you can't hold it. It slips through your fingers. And, and that's a very different translation than saying yeah. it's meaningless. Well, maybe those cultural transitions, you know, throughout the West, you know, you're just talking about from, you know, the Hebrew to the Latin Arab, then to the European, there is kind of a sense in which our our reliance on the cognitive, informative kind of realm, whether you call that left brain or whatever, uh, had taken root that, you know, the most important things are the things we think. Um, and so the meaninglessness, you know, is the opposite of, you know, the cognitive information. Uh, so us in the West probably kept wanting that to be the translation, but really there's, is it more of a, like an embodied kind of visceral or a experiential kind of aspect to it that the, that the text really should be driving us toward? So this might be another sort of theological deep dive, but part of what um, the author's getting at is um, 
that, so there's this human problem of Havel. It's just, it's built into the fabric of our existence. And God has not left us alone in that. That God's response, the divine response to the human problem of Havel is enjoyment, pleasure, which is very embodied. It's eat, drink, and be married, be with your community, wear bright garments, um, anoint your head with expensive oils. And part of why that becomes so important is it protects against discontentment. And discontentment, they, they use really heavy imagery, um, the imagery of someone who is stuffing themselves and their gullet is never full, they're never satisfied, and that that's what can happen in a world that is uncertain. We just want more and more. We try to get more security, more material items, but that that actually leads to discontentment, which connects with Canaanite mythology, which used a similar imagery for death, death that was actually swallowing up life. Mm. And so the author is essentially connecting the risk of discontentment with cosmic chaos and with death, right? That these things are going to contribute to humans over-consuming and needing more and oppressing humans and oppressing the land. And so the response to that is, is to actually be present and to slow down and to sink into the gift of enjoyment, sensory enjoyment, embodied enjoyment, relational enjoyment that God has gifted humans in, in response to this human problem of Havel. Mm. So how does that, and this is for either one of you, how does that, um, how do you kind of help people, whether it's in therapy or just friends who are, you know, feeling like, you know, they're losing, you know, the solid things in life that they're all becoming like vapor. What are, what are practices or ways of kind of just being with people in the midst of, of, of that kind of stage of life? Maybe, maybe I'll just make a, say a word about how it helped me to read this chapter. And then um, that I, 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 of course, we have to think about helping other people and as pastors, as therapists and so forth. But I think, let me just start by the sort of profound impact on me. I, I think as in my history as a Christian, and I'm 62, so I've, and I've been a Christian really since the earliest days of my life that I remember. So um, I this was new to me. When we wrote the first draft of this chapter, and I saw what Megan Anna was doing, and I checked it out with my scholar friend, and I thought, this changes everything. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like the rest of the Bible is gets written off it just this this sort of book in the bible changes my understanding of sensory <clears throat> sensory experience and 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 what it means to to experience pleasure because i think i had spent most of my christian adulthood and childhood thinking that the best christians are the ones that refrain from enjoying things mm-hmm. and my wife and i are, are fruit farmers um so this was this around the time this was happening. The first Oregon strawberries of the season were coming ripe, and I that year I enjoyed strawberries so much more than I ever had. It's like, <laughs> I mean, Oregon strawberries are pretty amazing to start with, but to to take a bite of an Oregon strawberry when it comes ripe at the end of May, and then what Ecclesiastes says is you eat, drink, and be merry, and you give thanks to God. This was worship for me at, at that moment. I started thinking, based on what I was learning about Ecclesiastes, eating that strawberry, it was delicious, but it was worship. It was reflecting back to God the good gifts of this world. 
Mm. How do we help other people do that? Um, uh, that's where I punt and ask my, ask well, my daughter. I, I was raised in California, so I'm a little partial to our strawberries. <laughs> we make fun of California strawberries in Oregon. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Plenty of reason. Well, or go ahead, Big Anna. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I feel like my response is actually your territory, Dad, a little bit. Um, so there's a, a form of psychotherapy kind of third wave CBT it's called act acceptance commitment therapy and it's you know a lot of therapies these days are really infused with mindfulness we're realizing just how regulating this is for us how how much resiliency it builds so I would say mindfulness is one way of helping people to be present and accept what is because part of Ecclesiastes the flip side is also um when we're in hardship to um, accept it as it is. And, and when things are good to, I, I think that, that my favorite translation is when things are good, being good. And I think mindfulness is one of those things that helps us to be in good when there's that delicious strawberry, whether it be a Californian one or an Oregon <laughs> one. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I would say that's one way that we help people to, um, to be present to their lives in an embodied and meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I wrote down those words, you know, how to be present in pain, which is what we talked about in regard to laments, but to also be present in the midst of discontentment or the fleetingness of things. And that's really just embracing life, whatever it is. And, and I just think that, you know, Jesus really embodied that for us in his ministry is he, you know, he tells us to weep with those who weep, to rejoice mm-hmm. with those who rejoice. And uh, that goes, you know, to the concept of attunement is can we attune with the people around us and the emotional state that they're in and join them in those places. Uh, and can we do that with ourselves? Are we present or mindful enough to ourselves to attune to, you know, the places where we're at um, rather than going, you know, to defense mechanisms, to denial or to discontentment, trying to change our circumstances. Can we just embrace those? Can I jump in there too, Jeff? Cause um, yeah. you said you're interested in neuroscience and I'm not an expert in neuroscience, but you know, for decades we've he- heard now about mirror neurons, but mm-hmm. the latest things I'm reading suggests that it's much more like a, a symphony than a neuron that, that, that the whole brain, when you're with someone and you're weeping with someone who's weeping or you're rejoicing with someone who is, is rejoicing, your brains are in sync in ways that are that are far more complex and, and sophisticated than just mere neurons going back and forth. Um, this is the way we're created. This is the way we're made to be in the sort of this sort of harmonious connection with one another in these in these liminal moments in life, whether it be joy or sorrow. Mm. And that's what a helping relationship is, I think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I'm still learning about it, but it's not just like I have one neuron that connects with yours. It's our, you know, our whole, um, you know, embodied selves really respond to the embodied selves of other people. And we're embedded in these contexts and, um, you know, our our whole lives are enmeshed one with another. And when we, you know, are weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who, you know, rejoice, we're just entering into that, that dance of community, you know, and I'm teaching a class on the Trinity, right? So we just have the Father, Son, and Spirit, like we are made to join in that eternal community. Um, and it takes a lot, it, it looks a lot of different ways here in this life. And so can we 
uh, embrace that joy as well as that lament. Well, thank you so much for being on. The book, again, is Embodying Integration, uh, a fresh look at Christianity in the therapy room. Um, But not just that, but the whole church and everything. Thank you so much, Mark and Megan Anna, for taking the time to write that book and to and for embodying these practices and you know i'm just so grateful for this book but also i'm sure for all the continuing collaborations thanks for having us on jeff absolutely well this is the being with podcast and we're seeking to integrate uh neuroscience psychology religion and faith uh so tune in please subscribe and like and share wherever you might find us Thank you.